back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosnanski. Good afternoon everyone. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It is time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School Broadcast. How's everything going for you out there? I hope all your lives are going well here on this Monday, the 31st day and final day of the month of January. And, oh, what a time to be alive. You know, I thought we were spoiled. I thought we were, you know, it was just a uh, one-time thing with last week um, with the uh, division round of the NFL uh postseason figured oh can't be as great as that two weeks in a row we're not going to get that spoiled especially you know being such a dreary week in the northeast with the snowstorm we got had what figured that it was going to be a lot more of the same uh, with the championship sunday and boy was i wrong and I'm glad that I was wrong about at least one of the two games that took place yesterday. You know, being that my team never makes the playoffs, we're the longest in the NFL um, as far as teams with uh, playoff droughts. I had no particular rooting interest. I had no dog in the fight, no no one that uh, saying more so than anybody else I, w- I want to see win a championship. I'm just rooting for good games here from this point out because I avoided what would have been the nightmare Super Bowl for me, an AFC East team going up against the most obnoxious fan base in the sport and in all of professional sports, the Dallas Cowboys. But, you know, the last two weeks we... As I said, we had great game after great game. And, you know, yesterday was more of the same, especially with uh, the AFC Championship game in the afternoon. And yesterday was a sign that, you know, you never say it's over till it's over. Because if you would have just watched, say, the first 20 minutes of the game, you're thinking, oh, Chiefs in a rout. This game is over. They're marching up and down the field uh, with ease against this Bengals team. The Bengals looking like maybe this moment is a little bit too big for them. And Mahomes and company might be on their way with relative ease to their third straight Super Bowl appearance. But a funny thing happened along the way. You got to play 60 minutes in a football game. You got to play two halves. Games aren't just won in or decided in the first half. And 
after halftime, you know, Patrick Mahomes was awful. Now, even um, he said so himself after the game. By the lofty standards that we have rightfully so set for him, he was an abomination in the, the second half. And you really look at the final moments of the first half as the turning point for them. Because, you know, the Bengals finally get a touchdown to come down uh, the, the field on uh, the uh, long touchdown uh, pass uh, to uh, T, to uh, T. Higgins. And you're thinking, oh, here, here we go. This is uh, going to be... Uh, you know, a competitive game here. You know, you got it within uh, two touchdowns, but you also left time on the clock for Kansas City to come down and uh, score. You know, we saw last week they scored within 13 seconds to force an overtime. And once again, they marched down the field get into the red zone, get a pass interference uh, penalty by Eli Apple, who that seemed like the only positive thing he was doing yesterday was uh, committing uh, penalties. And still the Chiefs couldn't put the ball in the end zone to score because of their own brain deadness, their own stupidity. Now, I can understand what Mahomes was doing when he rolled out to the left and he threw it into the ground quick because there was nothing in the end zone. Wanted to make sure that he still had time left on the clock uh, to draw one more play. But what the hell was he doing on that final play of the half where he throws an out route to Tyree Kill? who's not in the end zone. He's still within the boundaries of the field and would get tackled um, on the one-yard line, allowing time to run out because Kansas City ran out of timeouts due to Andy Reid calling a timeout before using a challenge in the first quarter. And that moment would ultimately come back to bite them because, you know, I understand having confidence in your quarterback. He's earned that. But to throw it, not throw the ball into the end zone, throw throw one up there for Travis Kelsey uh, to tr try and um, jump above the defenders. Or what is Tyreek Hill not doing in the end zone in his own right? It's, you know, it's one thing if you've got, you know, McKinney or you've got uh, – you know, one of your running backs, excuse me, uh, within uh, the uh, the field there. Or you've got Robinson, who would become a target of interest later in this game for uh, um, Mahomes. If you've got one of those two guys, you know, on like the two, three yard line, because they're not going to be getting the the coverage that Kelsey or uh, Hill would be getting. But to have one of your main guys still not in the end zone on that play is, is just baffling. And then to not even be able to get the chance to ha 
have a field goal before the half because, say, you go up by 14, you got the Bengals, you know, thinking in their minds, you know, we had just got this within two touchdowns. Now they're up by uh, two touchdowns again, and they get the ball to start the second half. But their defense stepped up big time um, in that second half. That pass rush uh, with uh, Hendrickson and um, Hubbard, you know, had Mahomes running in circles in the second half. And an offense that most of us view as one of the best in the sport after scoring touchdowns on their three their first three possessions in the first half were only able to push across three points over seven possessions in the second half. And now you give the Bengals a lot of credit. Their defense stepped up after um, getting torched in the first half, only allowed about 83 yards in the second half and overtime gave uh, Burrow and company uh, enough time to, drive down the field a couple times and um, tie up this game and even get the lead uh, midway through the fourth quarter, leaving a stunned and shocked Arrowhead. And now you give uh, their uh, defense credit because there was so much time left on the clock um, in the fourth quarter for the Chiefs to drive down. And they had the ball for the entirety of of the rest of the fourth quarter, a 14-play drive that would leave most defenses exhausted, leave most defenses broken, especially with Trey Hendrickson going in and out of the lineup in that final uh, drive. You're thinking, oh, the Chiefs are going to score on a late touchdown here. Uh, The Bengals, maybe they get one crack at a Hail Mary. But that final... uh, you know, sequence there, minute and a half to go. Uh, McKenney gets tackled on the four-yard line, and then Mahomes gets sacked on back-to-back plays, forcing uh, them to have to settle for a 40-yard field goal just to force overtime. And once the Chiefs won the coin toss, you're thinking, oh, here we go again. The Chiefs are going to pull another one right out of their rear ends. But... You know, the Bengal defense was still game there. You know, I don't understand why was Demarcus Robinson Pat Mahomes' number one target of choice going into overtime? Why was he so uh, steadfast on trying to throw him the ball uh, a couple times? And then when he finally gets Tyreek Hill uh, back in in the mix here, you get... uh, a ball tipped in the air and Von Bell with a rather excuse me like interception that put the Bengals in great position to drive down for the game winning field goal. And you leave, like I said, a stunned arrowhead who know, probably an hour before that was ready to be in party mode, thinking they're going to their fourth straight championship. And instead they're going to be sitting home and watching Super Bowl 56 like the rest of us. Meanwhile, the Bengals, for the first time since before I was born, are going back to the Super Bowl. And you know, you look at the history they made here, tying the largest comeback in a title game with the 06 Colts. Uh, their first Super Bowl appearance in now 34 years. 
and Burrow becoming the first number one overall pick to reach a Super Bowl in his first two seasons. This was a team that two years ago went 2-14. and 14. They won six games over uh, Zach Taylor's first two years as the head coach. Joe Burrow, remember, missed most of the second half of last year because he tore his ACL. But he, he's come back, even with wearing a brace, hasn't looked like he uh, missed much. Gets Jamar Chase in last year's draft when most people thought they should have taken uh, Panay Sewell. And they have just, week after week, lived by this phen- this mentality of, hey, why not us? It should be us. Let, let's change expectations around here from the little engine that could to being a team that is worthy of everyone's respect. And now they go up against a team in the LA Rams who become only the second team to host a Super Bowl. The first being last year's uh, Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers. And it wasn't looking good for the Rams for a while there. Now the trailing 17 to seven heading into the fourth quarter, even with the fact that uh, Stafford um, was slicing up that defense in the first half um, with you know, the fact that you, know, you had single coverage against Beckham and no matter how many people you um, put against Cup, whether you took John Lynch out of the luxury suite and had a, a fourth guy covering him was seemingly having a field day against that 49ers secondary you're still looking up and you're like, you know, the statistics don't make sense here. The The Rams should be up uh, big, but they're trailing by 10 going into the fourth quarter. And now I'm thinking, oh, the Rams are going to get somewhat of their comeuppance here. You have a, a turnover early by Stafford. They're not able to run the football as well as they had in previous games. You've got frustration with uh, Aaron Donald yelling at people on the sidelines. And Sean McVay seemingly uh, not knowing the correct times to use a challenge. I mean, you got guys on the ground with the football still in their possession. And he's using challenges questioning uh, whether it was a fumble or not. But they were bailed out. Because on the other side of the field... You had a head coach that has schooled McVay the last couple of years in Kyle Shanahan that rightfully so cannot trust his quarterback. And the worst of Jimmy Garoppolo showed up in the the worst moments. Now, it wasn't all on Jimmy. I mean, you did ha- have a moment there as you know, the Rams were starting the battle back where you're thinking maybe the comeback could be put on pause when, you know, I know there was about 10 minutes uh, left to go in this game, but uh, Josquez Tarp dropping that interception deep in Niners territory turned out to be big for them because, you know, they were able to still run the football uh, relatively well even with some of the limitations of Trent Williams in yesterday's game. But you got the football there. You're taking 
time and possessions away from the Rams. The Rams were down, I believe at that point, they were down to still only one timeout with the losses uh, from the challenges. And it couldn't have been more to them. It, I, now, I bring up this reference a lot, but uh, Tark, Tark could have put his hand up and called a fair catch. There was no one around him. I believe the, the pass was intended for Jefferson, but he took a route uh, to his left, and uh, Stafford is left sitting there thinking, oh, man, I just threw what could have been a game-changing interception. And instead, uh, Tart drops it. You look at it, it leads to next play. Beckham gets a 30-yard completion. Yeah, on 15 with an unnecessary uh, roughness penalty by Jimmy Ward, who goes from being a hero earlier with an interception to not being a bonehead because he gives up essentially 45 yards uh, of field difference there allowing the Rams to tie it up on a uh, Matt Gay field goal uh, later on. And then the, the 49ers offense did nothing from there. I mean, essentially, they must have thought they were going to win this game 17-7. Seven, and the Rams uh, had different interests. The, the Rams, you know, I talk about Donald and his intenseness on the sidelines he called the entire defense of unit together and said, hey, we're not giving anything else up. And that's what they did for the remainder of this game and allowed uh, um, Stafford and company the necessary time to retake over this game, to re um, uh, take back their chance at hosting Super Bowl 56. And, you know, the big blunder at, at the end of this game was, of course, Garoppolo's interception, whereas he, he's diving to the ground. He kind of does this shuttle pass and gets picked off there. But let's face it, he had no time to breathe in, in the, that final uh, play there. I mean, he's just looking to make a play. You know, I know he, he's got his limitations and, you know, showed in this postseason why the the 49ers were so willing and eager to trade up so much draft capital to dra to draft Trey Lance last year and why his future in all likelihood is elsewhere but I'm not going to put this loss all on him I mean you no know, Kyle Shanahan knew he had to uh you know you know You've got to score more points against this Rams team. Even if they just uh, settle for field goals, they're not just going to wilt and disappear. We're not going to win this game 17-7. Uh, not in that house. Not with the, uh, Even with the fact that it seemed like you had the crowd advantage on your side. Now, the, now the, at some point you knew the bad side of Jimmy Garoppolo was going to show up. And unfortunately, it showed up in the fourth quarter of the biggest game of their your year for the second time in the last three seasons. So now, while the 49ers and the Chiefs sit there and think about what could have been, we have two weeks to stew over what looks like on paper a very exciting, fun matchup with the Rams being the second team 
ever to host a Super Bowl going up against a Bengals team who truly can live by the philosophy of why not us and provide that inspiration and motivation to teams and fan bases that have been downtrodden for a long time for future years of, hey, if they can do it, maybe we can do it too. All right, a lot left I want to get to. I want to talk about uh, the the possible retirement of Tom Brady, as well as some of these uh, head coaching openings uh, being filled. Baseball's Hall of Fame vote uh, was announced uh, last week, uh, mixing some NBA thought as well. So a lot I want to get to for the next about 45 or so minutes here. Glad you could join me. Hope you stick around and please put your feet up, relax, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Now, I am firmly in the opinion that everyone should have a voice. Everyone should be able to speak their minds. You know, it, as long as you're not trying to tell me something that has been proven untrue, some kind of false information, something that we already know is false information, speak your mind. You know, our voice is our greatest weapon in life. But sometimes some people, you know, show that their opinions, if you want to call it that, are utter and complete crap, utter and complete nonsense, and they should just Go the hell away. No, it's we're not trying to mute you for having an opinion. We're trying to we're muting you for having a ridiculous opinion, uh, an opinion that is a combination of stupid and offensive. And that occurred last week when it comes and and I was surprised by who this opinion came from. It came from former NFL quarterback Jeff Garcia. Remember Jeff Garcia? Well, back like when I was in high school, Jeff Garcia was always viewed as that guy that every team wanted as their backup quarterback. 
So in case something went wrong in the first five weeks of the season, say your your quarterback sucked or got hurt, or even if during a game your quarterback got hurt but you knew it wasn't too serious, just had to miss the rest of the game, you could turn to Jeff Garcia and he could you know make magic happen. Kind of in the same way that Ryan Fitzpatrick is these days. You don't want him as your starting quarterback, but he's a reliable veteran backup quarterback that can win you games, can uh, pull you out of the trenches and help your team have success. Well, last week, now as these games uh, were being previewed and you know there was still all the buzz and reaction to the divisional round, he must have been watching ESPN's first take. You know, Stephen A's show where he has, you know, a cavalcade of different uh, panelists on to debate him each uh, day and a week. And on there was ESPN uh, NFL uh, uh, columnist and uh, commentator Mia Kimes. Mina Kimes. She's on NFL Live uh, uh, multiple days a week and really does uh, a great job. Uh, uh, you know, you could tell the the guys on there have, have a lot of respect and intrigue for her thoughts and opinions on uh, the NFL. Well, she was on first take with Stephen A. And they were talking about Jimmy Garoppolo and said, quote, Jimmy isn't the reason they're winning. They're winning with him, but not because him. And would bring up the fact that he posted the second lowest QBR in 15 years in the game against the Packers. Would go on, Mina would go on to say, quote, since joining the Niners, he has two touchdowns and five interceptions in the postseason. These are not advanced stats. The dude is just simply not helping them win. And this is an opinion a lot of people have had, whether it's people that are paid to do this, um, people like myself who do podcasts. Most people look at it and say, all right, Jimmy's a decent quarterback, but he's about, you know, fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth on the list of the reasons why uh, the Niners are winning. Between Kyle Shanahan, that great defense, uh, Debo Samuel, uh, George Kittle. Uh, After that, uh, Jimmy kind of comes along for the ride. Well, Jeff Garcia being a former 49er and still clearly a 49ers fan would decide to go on a very insensitive rant on Instagram, uh, I guess commenting on a video of this being posted on one of the ESPN pages and wrote, who, quote, who the hell is Mina Kimes? And when is the last time she threw a touchdown pass in a game? Never, ever has she taken a snap or can truly understand the ability, the mindset, the physical, mental toughness that it takes to play the quarterback position or any position in the NFL. The fact that there are people out there given a platform to talk about something that they have never done is hilarious, and that's how um, you have to look at her. She is a joke. End quote. Really? We're we're gonna go, we're gonna go there. You know we're gonna, you know that 
you see a lot of this from athletes who either are not currently on TV or never worked on TV or in any broadcast form that whenever they see someone that um, has an opinion that differs from theirs, which is what a surprise in today's society. I mean, where else you see that? Whenever there's someone that has an opinion that differs from theirs and it's someone that has never played professional sports, they not only will go to that low-hanging fruit, but they'll also either bring up, in some cases, race. Thankfully, that wasn't brought up here. But also bring up, you know, gender. You know, bring, bringing up the fact that she's a woman and she's never taken a snap uh, in a professional football game. So her opinion should not matter. Which is, quite frankly, outright ridiculous to me. This is this is a woman that, if I did my research correctly here, she's a graduate of Yale. She is clearly a highly educated woman. Uh, and clearly, if anyone sits there, looks at any of her work, or watches her on ESPN, you see that she clearly knows the game as well as anyone else. You got Hall of Fame players, pro Bowl, former Pro Bowl players on NFL Live or on First Take or any of the other uh, shows on ESPN that are going to her looking for her opinion, asking for her insight on what she saw in a given game uh, that week. Not caring that, oh, she never played the sport. Not caring that this is uh, a woman talking about NFL. Why should, hell, why should that ev ever even matter? If you know what you're talking about, if you know um, the, the sport, you're willing to put in the time to study it and and have a clear knowledge of it so that you can um, put together a, an informed opinion, it shouldn't matter your your gender, it shouldn't matter uh, your background, wh where you came from. I mean, this was a, a totally ridiculous re response by Jeff Garcia. Now, she's handled it well. You know, would fire back. And, and what what a surprise. After he got heat from this, he deleted this post. Yeah, real, real great job there, Jeff. But Mina has responded back with it uh, on uh I believe she screenshotted this before uh, he deleted it and posted on Twitter, quote, apparently I'm the only person uh, last week to point out Jimmy Garoppolo didn't play well, end quote. And like, really, all of us have had that opinion. Hell, I've never uh, played football on any level. Do you, what, uh, the, do I lack the understanding and the mindset of just because I never played quarterback? and? I guarantee if this was a man saying this, Jeff Garcia would not have said anything. But because it was a woman said this on TV, he had to, you know, go there. And, you know, it's funny. He'll delete the post, but he's still going on uh, radio stations such as 95.7 The Game out in San Francisco and continuing to, uh, you know, either say that 
he feels he doesn't have to apologize for his beliefs. Um, and my experience playing the quarterback posi position and the difficulty of that, like no, no one's asking you to uh, apologize for your experience playing. Just show respect for the opinions of others. Just because, oh, she says something you doesn't don't like, don't doesn't mean you got to bring up the fact that she never played the sport. No, she could have as much or more an understanding on how to, uh, a good quarterback plays as you do, Jeff, just because she never played the sport. And that now when I saw that, it just outraged me. And I, I was so glad that so many people at ESPN, not just, you know, Molly Karam Rose, the host of First Take, but so many of uh, Mina Kimes' uh, uh, male colleagues came to her defense. Uh, as I said, she's handled it well uh, and uh, um, hasn't you know, fired back, gone scorched or when uh, she really could have. But to me, it, it made Jeff Garcia look like such a small human being. Now, ESPN did make what looks like on the surface, one blunder this past weekend. And, you know, it's another example of maybe we should wait and let's hear it from the source directly before we rush to make news, before we rush uh, to, uh, you know, either dig someone's grave or report something as fact before uh, we have all of our details here. Because at 2.30 on Saturday afternoon, Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington were reporting that Tom Brady is retiring from football after um, 22 seasons. And this is, this is coming off of Tom last week on his Let's Go podcast, essentially opening the door further than it was at this time last week, of the possibility of him retiring, of the possibility that we've seen the last of him playing uh, football in the NFL. Talking about how his family is going to play a big part in the decision. Well, you know, Schefter and Darlington report that Brady is retiring, and it's got, you know, everyone in the sports world like, commemorating his 22 seasons in the NFL, talking about, oh, this is the GOAT. His accomplishments will never be uh, uh, met or surpassed. And then within an hour and a half later, you got Michael Silver uh, uh, putting out tweets saying that Tom Brady contacted uh, the Buccaneers to tell them they has not yet made a final decision on retiring and disputing uh, ESPN's uh, uh, report as well as Tom's father, Tom Sr., uh, saying in a statement uh, that Tommy has not yet made a decision. Anybody uh, uh, that says he has is absolutely wrong. That coming via uh, Crone 4, the Bay Area's uh, local news station. So I don't know whether he is retiring or he isn't retiring now. If he was smart, he'd wait till after Friday when he gets $15 million of uh, the deferred money from his $20 million signing bonus. Now, that would be a smart decision. And, you know, 
I'm sure he doesn't want to announce, make this announcement on Championship Sunday or Super Bowl Sunday, take spotlight away from anybody like that. But, no, before we dig the grave on Tom Brady's career, can we hear from the guy first? Can we hear a definitive answer from him before we rush to make a decision? Now, that this isn't on the same level as Kobe Bryant passing away, but that should have taught us you know, with all the misreported uh, information that was put out there before we found out that it was him and his daughter Gigi on that helicopter. That should have taught us, wait and let everything play out. Everyone's in such a rush to be the first one to report something rather than let's get all of our details together and then put together something definitive. Now, there were four head coaching hirings over the last couple of days with the Packers hiring Nathaniel Hackett uh, um, as, uh, or excuse me, the Broncos hiring uh, Packers offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett as their new head coach, Bears hiring Colts defensive coordinator uh, Matt Eberflus at and uh, the Raiders yesterday uh, announcing the hiring of uh, Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels to be their new head coach. And the Giants hiring uh, Bills offensive coordinator Brian Dayball as their new head coach. And I don't know if any of these are going to work out. I don't know if any of these are going to be the right guy. I mean, in the Bears case, you know, they get back to their defensive mindset, even though the number one goal of that organization is de the development of Justin Fields, because as great as Aba Flus ran the defense uh, with the the Colts having a top 10 in, in scoring and total uh, defense of uh, in his four years there, and they were fourth in rushing yards allowed as well as second in takeaways. Still, we have seen that you're not going to win without a very good to excellent quarterback at the helm. And they've been dancing in circles for decades trying to find that guy. You know, in the case of the Broncos, they're hoping that hiring Nathaniel Hackett, and they haven't said this publicly, but I mean, it's clearly obvious. They're hoping that hiring Nathaniel Hackett will eventually lead to the arrival of Aaron Rodgers. You know, with the Raiders, now it seems like they're trying to make New England uh, West Coast with hiring in the same day uh, Patriots uh, director of player personnel uh, Dave Ziegler to be their new GM. Hours after that, they hire Josh McDaniels. And I know there's a lot of questions about McDaniels. You know, he wasn't great in his first uh, head coaching stop uh, with the Broncos. But let's face it, not a lot of people are great in their first stop. It usually takes that second time uh, for some head coaches uh, to find their niche. And people are mistrusting, uh, don't trust McDaniels after the, how he handled uh, the situation with the Colts a couple of years ago. But 
he's put together a very good resume uh, as part of the offensive coaching staff with the Patriots for the last 20 years, worked his way up the system. I think he's, you'd, you'd have to think he's learned from his mistakes, especially um, when he was with the Broncos. He, he was the one that decided they should draft Tim Tebow in the first round. Now he's got, there's got to be a lot of questions to answer there with the Raiders. The fact that they're only got $30 million in cap space, got a lot of free agents on the defensive end, and Derek Carr is entering his final year of his contract. But now you, you have to be willing to give it a chance if you're a, a Raider fan. I mean, I wanted Rich Passaccio to get this job. I thought he did a uh, good job there, how he handled things after John Gruden got fired. But clearly, uh, the front office wanted to go in a different direction. Clearly, this was a GM's hiring, not uh, a hiring from Mark Davis, because he would have probably stuck with Rich Passaccio if he had more of a say in this over the general manager. Now, with the Giants, they hire Brian Dayball, and I listened to his press conference driving in. And like I said with the other guys, I don't know if this is the right hiring. Uh, I don't know if it's going to have success in the long run. You, I mean, you can never predict these things. But the one thing I will say is he comes off as relatable, comes off as likable. Come Him and Joe uh, uh, Sheen, um, who had his uh, press conference uh, last week. Now, there was no BS. There was no uh, being fed a pile of garbage here like you were the last several years uh, with Dave Gettleman and Joe Judge, where they came off as the most unlikable human beings you're going to find. You know, Dave Gettleman always seemingly talking down to the, the media like they had you know, kind of the, the same way Jeff Garcia talked down to Mina Kimes, like, oh, how dare you question anything that I do or any decisions I make. And in the case of Joe Judge, where he was always speaking in puns and given this fake tough guy personality, you know, these guys, you know, they realize the task that they have in front of them. They realize that they have kind of a rebuild situation on their hands and have to take it step by step and not skip any steps in the process. As, as I said, I don't know if any of these are going to work out in the long run, but at least you know you have these organizations with a clear plan. The Broncos clearly they're going to be chasing uh, Aaron Rodgers. The Bears get back to uh, you know what's been a traditional defensive mindset while still. Uh, developing Justin Fields. The Raiders, you know, no nonsense, no BS, you know, kind of New England West Coast, and the Giants realizing that they have to uh, rebuild here and it's going to take some time, not just some be some overnight sensation. You still have five head coach openings with the Saints, Jaguars, Vikings, Dolphins, and Texans. I think Brian Flores is going to end up with the Texans job. I'm hopeful now that the Chiefs have been eliminated that this gives a better chance for Eric Bieniemy 
to get a head coaching job because say what you want. You know, he doesn't get to bring Mahomes, Kelsey, and, and hell with them. Uh, people bring up that was Andy Reid's offense. But with how highly that group of men talk about him, you had to figure that you know, it, he wasn't just a passenger. It wasn't just a, a long-for-the-ride situation that he was doing as their offensive coordinator the last several years. So, you know, hopefully, you know, he ends up with a job this time around. But, you know, as much as I want equality, as much as I want, you know, diversity with these jobs, I want the best overall person for each uh, spot uh, picked here. Not, not just because of uh, their race, ethnicity, religious beliefs, uh, gender, what be it. Best overall person, not forced into picking someone because of you know public or peer pressure. And in the Texans' case, I do believe it would be. Brian Flores, because of his, this seeming connection that he's making with Deshaun Watson. The Jaguars, it seems like that there's a little bit of uh, dancing around jockeying with Brian, Byron Lethwich. The Vikings, are you're hearing now about Jim Harwell, Hardball possibly uh, being in the, the mix there. Like I said, hopefully for each of these teams' sakes, they make the best overall decision gonna take another break here come back on the other side and get to something that always seems to aggravate me every year and that is the baseball hall of fame continue keeping it sports with m3 i'll be back Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. You know, it's that time of the year again. Each and every single year, this one way or another seems to aggravate me. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to change my life. It's not going to change anything for the better or the worst. But every year on that either last Tuesday or second to last Tuesday of January, we find out the results of the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, ballot voted on uh, the Baseball Writers of America somewhere between 440 and 500 uh, 
writers vote on players that have that are eligible for Hall of Fame induction that remember you have to have been retired for at least five years. You have to get 75% of the vote to get into the Hall of Fame and have at least 5% to remain on the ballot uh, for the next year and can only be on the ballot for 10 years. And, you know, one player, only one player was voted in this year. And, you know, I shouldn't be surprised because I've been saying this for about five years that this was going to happen. And that was, of course, that one player was Big Poppy, David Ortiz, the longtime Boston Red Sox DH, was voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame last Tuesday evening. Now, I'm happy the fact that he did not get 100%. Hell, didn't even come close to 100%. Only 77.9% voted him into the Hall of Fame. Now, Maybe some of that is there's still some old school writers that are holding against him, him being a DH. And you still have some of those that need to join us in the 21st century and get over themselves when it comes to the hatred toward the DH and realize that it is a real position. Or maybe there's some of those that are holding against him some off-the-field stuff that we will get to. But there's no denying that as a player, as a header, David Ortiz put together quite an impressive resume over his 18-, 19-year career. He was a 10-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion, including uh, MVP in the uh, 2013 World Series, had a career line of 541 home runs, 1,768 RBIs, and a slash line of 286 um, batting average, 380 on base percentage, and a slugging of 552, 10 seasons of over 30 home runs, and three of which that were 40-plus, uh, including a uh, – 54 home run season mix in there. And in all 10 of those seasons had a hundred plus RBIs on the surface. That is a hall of fame resume. And you cannot deny that this guy was a dominant hitter over the course of his career was, was clutch in the postseason. was not just along for the ride for those three Red Sox championships, including helping them break the curse in 2004. But this once again shows the hypocrisy of the baseball writers. Why they pick and choose you know, how they feel about performance-enhancing drugs. Because might I remind you all that while he wasn't on the infamous 2007 Mitchell report, and this is... This is something that people get confused all the time. There was the Mitchell report investigation, and then there was another report that came out in 2009. He was not on that Mitchell report. How stunningly, uh, there was no uh, significant Boston Red Sox on uh, that 
list. They were the only team that seemingly did not have some kind of ties uh, on that list. What a surprise. But there was that drug test that was done for performance-enhancing drugs in 2003. A, a, a random survey uh, test that, or anonymous, excuse me, survey test that no one was going to be punished. No, that the names and the failed tests weren't going to be put out there. But if it reached at least five percent that of the twelve hundred uh, tests that were taken, then baseball would start drug testing uh, for performance enhancing drugs the next season. And it was somewhere around 7 or 8% of the players tested, tested positive. 104 players uh, to be exact. And in 2009, in February 2000 uh, or July 2009, four players' names were revealed from that list. Now, early on of that year, we would find out A-Rod was there, was listed there. And as the months would go on, we would find out Sammy Sosa was listed on there. Manny Ramirez was listed on there. And I believe 2009 was the year that he failed a PTE test and had to serve a rather lengthy suspension. As well as Manny's former teammate was listed on there. You got it, David Ortiz. And Ortiz... Remember, right after that, they were at Yankee Stadium, essentially ran crying to the Players Association um, and was sitting there with essentially a tearful press conference with the head of the Players Association um, um, right there by his side, arguing that he never knowingly cheated and um, had some uh, questions about false positives with those uh, tests saying that, oh, I've never failed a test that MLB has uh, done, which is a true statement there. Now, after starting with 04 through the rest of his career in 2000, which ended in 2016, he never failed a PED test to our knowledge that was given by Major League Baseball, but he was on this list. And for some reason, he has been always given a free pass. Now, I keep hearing this from the media. Oh, he was so likable. Please, you see how he acted on the field? He acted like he was bigger than the sport. He was he was a crud toward umpires. Uh, you know, his fellow countrymen uh, uh, that were fellow players liked him. But most other players couldn't stand the guy because they knew he was getting away uh, with uh, stuff. And now baseball, this was the only guy of those of those 104 players whose name that was revealed between him, A-Rod, Sosa, and Manny that they have come to the defense of and, and stood steadfast there. Meanwhile, his buddy, his uh, co-TV host on uh, uh, for baseball on Fox, Alex Rodriguez only got 34.3% of the vote. And A-Rod had even far more dominant numbers than 
then Big Poppy, almost 700 home runs, a three-time MVP, all-star four more times, only won one uh, World Series title, yet he gets held out. He gets held out. He's treated like the worst human being on God's green earth. Because, oh, he lied in an interview with Katie Couric in 2007. Then when uh, the Selena Roberts' report came out in SI about A-Rod testing positive for uh, two anabolic steroids in 03, during that drug test, he would come out, admit it, apologize in, in spring training. But still, the writers held an, a... Uh, a grudge against him. Later, he would his name would surface in the biogenesis uh, scandal because he was trying to buy the the uh, the investigation, try to buy the evidence to cover up his involvement in all of this, and would serve a full-year suspension in 2014 for his part in that. But him, just like David Ortiz, never once failed a PED test given out by MLB. But we're going to roll out the red carpet for David Ortiz and not A-Rod. I mean, it's ridiculous. It, it really is. The double standard that these writers are doing is outright stupid. And listen, you see this double standard being held everywhere on the, this ballot. You know, not just when it comes to A-Rod versus Ortiz, but Ortiz versus, you know, the two biggest names that have been on the ballot for the last decade, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, who, listen, you know, the, this year was, I believe, the highest that either one of them has ever received. Bonds got 66%, Clemens 65.2%, and now they're off the ballot, and their fate as far as reaching the Hall of Fame is in some future veterans committee's hands years from now. And we all know that in all likelihood, both of these guys did steroids. I mean, you look at Barry Bonds, compare him, a picture of him from like 1996 to a picture of him in 1998. That's two different human beings right there. And, you know, he had, he admitted in the Balco investigation that he used the cream, that he didn't know that it was a, a steroid or a, um, or performance enhancer, but that he was involved with two guys that would end up serving some time in jail over uh, this investigation. Clemens, we all know his deal. Uh, his personal trainer, Brian McNamee, threw him under the bus and, and, told us everything we needed to know as far as him going to Clemens' house and not just injecting Roger, but injecting Roger's wife with uh, um, PEDs. And, you know, Roger's excuse that, oh, he never took steroids, never took HGH, and didn't know that uh, McNamee was injecting his wife with this is such a BS. I mean, 
Who doesn't know what's going on in their own house uh, that someone's coming in and injecting their wife with HGH? And that was utter and complete BS. But neither one of them as well have ever failed an MLB drug test. But they get the arguably the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time. Definitely in the top two, three of my lifetime. And the most feared slugger of my lifetime. No matter what you want to say about him and how he became like a video game the last eight years of his career. These two are two of the greatest in the history of the sport. And they're held out of the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame is supposed to be a story of the history of baseball. And how do you tell that story without these two part of it? It makes no sense to me. It's an outright abomination. It's ridiculous. The the you know if you're gonna hold this against Bonds, Clemens, and A Rod, you've got to hold David Ortiz to the same standard. He's not you know oh holier than now that he deserves a free pass from this. But of course, that's not the only things from the ballot that bug me. No, Kurt Schilling. It was his final year of eligibility and he fell short once again. Now, last year after falling short, he wrote a letter asking to be removed from the ballot. They didn't do that. And I think it was only about, you know, 65% voted for uh, Kurt this year. And listen, we know Kurt Schilling's not a likable human being. There's a lot of people out there, hell, a majority of people that disagree with his his views on life. Uh, there's a, a large portion of this country that disavues, disagrees with his views on politics, and maybe some of his views he goes a little too far in his beliefs. And no, it was unnecessary the the tweet that he sent out years ago when he was at a some political rally and there was someone with a t-shirt that insinuated lynching the media. And he, he writes there's, Oh, there's a whole lot of awesome here, but that him being a jackass shouldn't take away from the fact that this is a hall of fame pitcher. Kurt Schilling was a great big game pitcher was a one 212 games in his career was 11 and 2 lifetime in the postseason with a 2.23 ERA is a three-time World Series champion, uh, winning uh, a World Series with the Arizona Diamondbacks and helped the Red Sox three years later end their historic curse. And and he's better than some of these pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame right now. You know, I brought up in the past. I think he's a much better pitcher than Mike Messina. So now we're holding against him who he is as a person. You know, last time I checked, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't harm any women, animals, or children. He hasn't gone to jail for anything. He's just kind of a schmuck when it comes to his opinions on life, politics, and uh, hate toward the media. That shouldn't, you know, maybe they're worried about what he'd say in his Hall of Fame induction speech. But that shouldn't change anyone's view on him as far as what a great pitcher he was. And then I look down this ballot 
and I, as I go through the ballot, I get more ignore, annoyed. Can someone tell me, you know, maybe I missed something in the last, oh, 10 years. But explain to me how Scott Rowland has become more and more a popular Hall of Fame candidate in these last 10 years. Last time I checked... Nothing has increased when it comes to his numbers. He still only has 316 career home runs, 2,077 career hits, uh, just under 1,300 RBIs, and was a 281 hitter. Over his 17 seasons in the big leagues, he was a seven-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Glove, was the Rookie of the Year in 1997, but only had one top 10 finish in the MVP voting. And at what is considered a high sluggers power position in third base, only had 330 home run seasons and two seasons in which he hit over 300. Yet every year over the last five years, his voting percentage has gone up from 10.2% to 17.2% to 35.3% to 52.9% last year to now 63.2%. When did, like, he he put up good numbers. He was a good player. He wasn't a scrub, but he was, his numbers were not even good enough to be considered a compiler. He barely had over 2,000 hits in 17 seasons. And we're putting, we have writers looking at this guy as a potential Hall of Fame Inductee, you know, in the next two years, he's going to reach that 75% threshold. And like, what did I miss that all of a sudden he's now a Hall of Fame guy? Same goes for Todd Helton. Each of these last three years, last four years, excuse me, his numbers have gone up from 16.5 to 29.2 to 44.9 to now 52%. He spent his entire 17-year career with the Rockies, and he was clearly a production of Coors Field. You look at it. At home, he hit 345. On the road, he hit 247. Of his 369 home runs, 227 of them were hit in Coors Field. He's a five-time All-Star from 2000 to 2004, and after that, you know, five-year stretch where he hit 30 home runs each year. He was kind of just an average player who just hung around for the last eight or nine years of his career. Once again, good player, not a scrub, but the Hall of Fame is meant for the best of the best, not, you know, let's just open the doors and let everybody in. It should be an elite class that is going in. And I don't understand how they're getting so much love, but not Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, this is next year will be his 10th year on the ballot and is barely getting any support. 15.2%, 14%, 16.6%, 16.7%, back down to 14.5%, 18.1%, 27.5%, and 32.4%. And this was one of the best offensive second basemen of my lifetime. Hell, you know, he has numbers that some second basemen in history don't even 
come near. He has the most home runs by a second baseman with 377, had 1,500 RBIs, 2,400 hits, hit 290, a 3 of 56-on-base percentage, 500 slugging. His numbers dwarf, dwarf uh, Scott Rollins. He... No, Scott Rowland is nowhere in the ballpark of the kind of player he was. Hell, Jeff Kent has an MVP on his record. And from 97 to 05, not only was he the best second baseman offensively in the sport, but he was one of the best offensive players across the sport. Had four top 10 MVP finishes. And he's getting no love, no support, all because, oh, and I looked this up earlier this morning. His war is 15% lower than, than is uh, Scott Rollins because, oh, he wasn't a gold glove caliber defender. I watched Jeff Kett play. I can tell you, he wasn't, he wasn't stone hands out there. He wasn't a great second baseman. You know, he wasn't winning the gold glove every year, but he clearly was not costing his team games. Hell, I listen to... Radio legend Christopher Mad Dog Russo, whether it's regularly with his radio show or um, on his TV show, he talks about this all the time. High Heat on MLB Network. He's a diehard Giant fan. Jeff Kent played for the Giants for six years, and never once did he think Jeff Kent's defense was costing them chances to win games. So I, I don't get this. No, the... The diversity that there is as far as who we're going to judge PEDs against. No, the hatred towards Schilling just because of the person he is. And why the writers favor Todd Helton and Scott Rowland over Jeff Kent, who was clearly a better player than each of them. And he should be getting that Hall of Fame love, not these two average players. And these writers have become so ass-backwards when it comes to the Hall of Fame. It's sickening. All because of, oh, who they like and who they don't like. And, of course, the fact that they allow analytics to be part of the equation these days. I'm going to take a break and try to calm the hell down. But when we come back on the other side, kind of close out things with some thoughts on James Harden and maybe a thought or two on, you know, Chiefs fans. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder, Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO.
Alright, only a few more minutes left here, but let's uh, finish things off. Now, first off, about a week ago at this time, was coming out some differing reports on my guy, James Harden, as far as his future comes with the Brooklyn Nets. First, you had Jake uh, Fisher of Bleacher Report talking about that Harden has not enjoyed living in Brooklyn, has voiced his frustration regarding Kyrie Irving's part-time playing time, and is making it very clear that he intends to test out free agency, even if it leads him back to the Nets. And then the next day, you have reports that the Nets have no interest in trading Harden before the deadline, even if he plans to test free agency. And listen, the whole time, I've always thought that James Harden was going to test free agency. I've made no grand illusions that he was going to sign an extension beforehand because financially, it makes no sense. He can get well north of $200 million if he becomes a free agent this summer. Now, he can get about 50 more million dollars if he re-signs with the Brooklyn Nets, which I'm very, very hopeful he'll do. But I was never under any thoughts, illusions that he was going to sign an extension beforehand, that he was going to do the same thing that KD did. My only question was, why was it that, you know, in the offseason, all right, KD was the priority. Then it was Kyrie, and then they were going to re-sign Harden. Why was Kyrie treated as the priority over James Harden when you knew that something was going to come up when it comes to Kyrie? Either an injury issue, which he's battled the last couple of years, or something off the court that was going to prevent him from playing, which seemingly happens uh, on a yearly occurrence with uh, Kyrie, whether it was, no not playing in the bubble, uh, not wanting to play after the the Capitol riots, or now you know the vac- his vaccination status preventing him from playing home games. And of course, you know James Harden was going to be frustrated by that because you no, know, say what you want about James Harden, you know he's ha- I've been critical of him the way he's played in in the postseason, especially in his days with the Houston Rockets. But the guy, you know, last year he had some injuries, uh, you know, clearly came into the season out of shape and was trying to get in shape as the season was going on. But the one thing you can't deny about James Harden is when he's available, he plays. He wants to be out there. That you Now, basketball is his number one focus. You know, he, he's you know, not p- always purposely looking for excuses on why not to play the game of basketball, unlike Kyrie Irving. So I could understand his frustration with uh, with, uh, the Kyrie Irving situation. But I think in the end, everybody, whether it's the front office, ownership, the players, and the fans want this to work out because, you know, you look at it with them, with that big three on the court together. They're nearly unstoppable. They, you know, they lost like, I think they played together 10 times uh, last year in the regular season um, and only lost twice. In the postseason, they were animals when they played together in that first round series against the Celtics. And the 
it took the buck the Milwaukee Bucks seven games to beat the Nets without Kyrie and a James Harden that was playing on only one leg and Kevin Durant doing absolute everything possible to drag a Brooklyn Nets team that got no consistency whatsoever out of any of their role players. I mean, Joe Harris is still trying to figure out when the Bucks series starts. That's how lost he was in that series. And they were getting re- out-rebounded like crazy in that series. It took all of that for the Bucks to barely beat the Nets in overtime of a Game 7 to advance. And we knew that that series, the winner, was going to in all likelihood represent the East in the in the NBA Finals. I will stick to this belief that I don't believe that there is a team that with these three guys healthy on the court together that can beat the Nets four times in a seven-game series. I need to see it to believe it. Unfortunately, I don't know if I'm going to see it this year because A, the most important thing is to get Kevin Durant back and healthy. But B, you know, something... There's got to be some kind of change in this Kyrie situation. Either he changes his stance or there's a change in the policy um, that allows him to play home games for the Nets in the playoffs. Because otherwise, this Nets team, we're going to be looking at a very disappointing end to their season once again. And I'm not concerned about the four-game losing streak they're on because... Yeah, they've fallen to six, but they're only two and a half games back of, of first place. And they go on a, they're on a five-game road trip right now, first being the loss the other night to the Warriors. But they've got four more games here, which means four more games that Kyrie and Harden can play together before they're back at home next week. Go out there and show me something. Win three out of four of these games. I know you got a back-to-back coming up here with the Suns and, and the Kings, but you've got Suns tomorrow night, Kings on Wednesday night. Then you go play in Utah on Friday before you finish things up uh, with uh, Joker and uh, the Nuggets on Sunday afternoon. Go win three of four, all right? You've, you've got, for the most part, this crew together, although... There are no updates and no timeline on the on the return of Joe Harris, which is you know, just wonderful to hear about. So, you know, get your get your shit together, Nets. It shouldn't have to be that hard. Now, the, another saga that continues to go on is uh, the Ben Simmons saga. Uh, the Kings have the latest team to pull out interest for Ben Simmons. And, you know, they realize what most people uh, realize, that the, the Sixers are asking for way too much for a guy that hasn't played at all uh, this year because he's claiming to go through mental health issues. And listen, you know, you guys know how serious I take mental health issues. It's right up there as far as social justice issues and of being anti-violence toward women, children, and uh, animals that, you know, help. All of us go through anxiety. All of us go through times where mentally we don't feel great. We don't feel like we belong. Like, 
you know, life just flat out sucks. I'm not going to make fun of that. But the large majority of us also believe that Ben Simmons is just using this as an excuse to get out of Philadelphia. That, no, this didn't come up as an issue until about five minutes before the season started when the 76ers were fining him uh, 250 grand each day for missing practice and other team activities. And then, oh, all of a sudden he comes in and says, oh, I can't play. I got um, mental health problems. And there's been no updates since then. He's, he's completely stayed away from the Sixers. He's put them in a difficult spot where they have a guy that's making $30 million a year not participating in games or team activities, wasting a season in which they're 10 games over 500, two games back of first place in the East. You got Joel Embiid putting up 30-point double-doubles left and right, having an MVP-caliber season. And he's continuing to pull his uh, nonsense, trying to force his way out of there. So I can understand why all these teams are backing out, saying, oh, no, this guy is not right for me. No, I don't want to trade assets for someone that clearly is just trying to force his way out. Now, we have two weeks to go until Super Bowl 56, uh, a Super Bowl that on paper looks like it could be a very fun Super Bowl. First off, you got the first Super Bowl since 1990 to not have a top two seed involved in it. Both the Rams and Bengals are four seeds. And, you know, the you look at the routes that these teams took to get here with the Bengals you know, knocking off the top two seeds in their conference and the Rams, you know, knocking off the number two seed Buccaneers, potentially knocking Tom Brady into retirement and finally overcoming their in-division rival, the 49ers. Now, there's going to be a lot of time to break this down over the next two weeks. But what I really want to get to here is I hope yesterday was a teachable moment, a lesson learned for not just the Kansas City Chiefs players, but the Kansas City Chiefs fans. And that is that nothing, that the old saying continues to be true. Nothing in this life is guaranteed. Nothing. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. The future's, uh, next week's not guaranteed. So to set your sights on something before it happens, setting it as a guarantee is just nonsense. It's just utter garbage. And where I'm coming at with this is I go back to July 2020 when Patrick Mahomes signed his $450 million mega deal to essentially be a Kansas City Chief for life. He was talking about how... They're setting being a dynasty as their goal. Now, Chris Jones talked about how that they're going to win five more of these. You had Tyreek Hill saying, oh, we're chasing after Jordan. Oh, we're going to win seven championships. And since then, 
You got dominated in a Super Bowl by the Buccaneers and blew an 18-point lead in your home building to a team that was perceived to be an underdog in the AFC title game. All right. Now, nothing's guaranteed. So to go out there and make these claims that, oh, you're a dynasty, you're going to win it all, this is the beginning of winning five to seven championships, was outright ridiculous claims by the, the, uh, this team, this group of guys. And, you know, I used to criticize them thinking that on offense, especially, they acted like they were a little bit too cool for school and there were certain things that Mahomes would do that he needed to calm the hell down on, like the no-look passes or thrown across his body, saying that eventually he's going to get burnt by that. Eventually someone's going to come and knock his teeth down his throat or that eventually someone was going to force the Chiefs to beat you in some other way than just Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. You know, yesterday was an example of that. Yesterday was also an example of how the other guy can win too. You know, those guys are paid to perform, paid to play, just like you are. No, just because you're in your home building, you've got 70 to 80,000 screaming Chief fans behind you. Does that guarantee you that you're just going to be in the Super Bowl each and every single year? So hopefully, yesterday was a piece of humble pie for those players. Humble pie for that fan base that had kind of become a little bit unlikable, a, a little bit obnoxious to deal with. Hell, you were even having one Kansas City Chief fan that's on television, one Mr. Nick Wright of Fox Sports 1, saying that this was stage two of a dynasty and that their first round matchup against the Steelers was, quote, better than a bye. Yesterday was a piece of humble pie. Yesterday was realizing, hopefully, nothing's guaranteed and that the other guy can win too. And I'm not saying that you guys won't be back as Super Bowl contenders next year. You'll be one of the favorites to come out of the AFC once again next year. But just wake the hell up. Stop acting like, oh, you're up here, everyone else is down here, and we all have to just kiss your ass. Get over yourselves. Come back more hungry, more determined next year. And show that you are as good as you say you are. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports when I'm three. For Monday, January 31st, 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I'll talk to you all again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave.
I'll be back. 